On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. On this episode, we're looking at a classic Star Trek Deep Space Nine two-parter from 1995. It's Past Tense 1 and 2. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Gorn, Liam Tiberius O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. Liam, are you excited to talk about Star Trek, the beloved sci-fi franchise? I am, actually. I'm very excited. <laughs> you can tell I'm excited. I'm already hopped up. Really excited. This is something we've been building towards for a little while here. And I can't remember, Liam, if we've ever talked on a podcast about our individual experience with the Star Trek franchise. We're obviously works that's something that has come through in all of our work but tell me liam before we introduce our very special guest what is your lifetime experience with star trek been we have talked about this before because Uh uh-huh i think you gave me grief because i was kind of uh blasé on deep space nine you were a little you were not excited about the very idea in fact i think it brought up it might be one of our dick miller podcasts specifically where you didn't have a lot of enthusiasm about watching an episode of deep space nine I, I don't know that I I don't know that it was that negative, but I will say this: You said I hate Deep Space Nine. I definitely I don't did not say that. The only, okay. the only no, but I just <laughs> was very clear that while I have watched Deep Space Nine and I've watched Voyager as well, the only Star Trek that I watched so much that it feels very familiar and very home like is Next Generation. Right, and really, it's the only one that I feel like I know very very well. That being said, big spoiler for today's episode, what? started this, these these episodes we're going to be talking about, and immediately was like, I remember this completely. Like, I knew it down to the voice of the guy with the dumb hat. I was like, yep, all right, this is all very familiar to me. And, uh, and I was so stoked because I remembered it being an episode I liked a lot. So I was excited to watch it. I think I've watched more... Quite honestly, I think I've watched more of Deep Space Nine than I realize. But for whatever reason, probably just because I was alive for, you know, like there was more Next Generation before Deep Space Nine was even available to me. So I think it's just I've watched so much more Next Generation that that's a little bit more in my memory. But as soon as this started, the only part of it that I felt a little weird about is I had completely forgotten that Colmini was on this show too. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, right. I love him. Like, I just, it was very weird, like this sudden realization, like, how did I forget he was on this show? So, in fact, he uh, left The Next Generation to join this show. Yeah. And later, and later after the end of The Next Generation, Worf joined the cast of D Space Mind. What do, you, what do you think about that? Uh, I don't remember watching those episodes, but if I did, I'm sure I was stoked because I love Worf. All right. I'm not, we'll get into it because our guest is, I'm very, I'm sure, very excited to be talking about this particular subject. But I will say that when it comes to the difference between the next generation and D Space Nine, there's, there's a lot of significant ones. But one of the biggest ones is that I think that D Space Nine specifically rewards you for watching it chronologically. And I think that's a little bit more difficult to do when you grew up like the both of us did, where it's in syndication, it's hard to catch in those orders, and maybe it didn't make as much of an impression on you. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. Our guest today is a writer, musician, and one-third of our Bar Tell Me Something Good podcast featured on the Cinema Smorgasbord Network. Also a trekker, probably. It's Adriana Gober. How are you doing, Adriana? 
I'm great, and I am a Trekker, definitely. Just what? want that on the record. Trekker or Trekkie? What's the what's the nomenclature that people prefer? I mean, to be honest, I think they both are kind of silly-sounding terms. I, I'm a mm-hmm. little bit baffled by how adamant some people are that Trekker is the superior term. Uh-huh. I don't have a preference. You can call me Trekker, Trekkie, just Star Trek fan. However you want to phrase it, it's fine with me. What's so great about Star Trek anyway, Adriana? I mean, Star Trek in general or Deep Space Nine specifically? Star Trek in general. Let's let's get down to brass tacks. Why should people give a shit about Star Trek? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think there are several several reasons. One, I mean, I think it's just good, thought-provoking science fiction. Um, you know, it it wrestles, it grapples with a lot of um, ethical and social dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a very, in, in general, it is a very hopeful and optimistic franchise. It gives us something to aspire to for the future. Um, it's... I mean, it's it just like very I mean this is of course subjective but I I think it's just really entertaining television when it comes right down to it uh and it also has been a catalyst for a lot of people to get into stem fields to get interested sure. in science mm-hmm. um it I know it has meant a lot to um you know uh like minority science fiction fans because of what it has done in terms of representation. Uh, Although I think there's some criticisms you can level at the franchise for that as well, especially, um, you know, I'm, I'm queer. And as a queer Star Trek fan, I think there's, it has left a lot to be desired in that department, but certainly it has had a very positive impact on a lot of people for the way that it has, um, you know, platformed, uh, black characters female characters um and the way that it uh kind of pushes for for more diversity more representation in some ways Um, the progressiveness is sort of built into it right because it was right from the beginning some of it may not have aged perfectly but there was always been attempts which is always why when people are critical about modern attempts for the franchise to be progressive i always find it so funny because it was there right from the beginning yeah yeah. I'm right there with you on that one. Even though Gene Roddenberry could be a bit of a weirdo. Liam, what do you like about the original Star Trek series? You ever watch that, the one from the 1960s? I think there is something kind of fun and campy about it. And there are episodes I've watched because people talk about those episodes being important. Sure. Uh, but when I found, I forget where it was. I don't think it was Netflix. There was somewhere where they had the original series up for streaming, and I got very excited because I thought, you know, this is something I should dive into. Uh, I couldn't do it, Doug. I couldn't do the whole series. I just found some of the episodes very boring. And I don't know if that is really the show's fault. It might just be that 60s television is not for me. Um, 
and if that's the case, that's fine. I, I you know, it is what it is. But um, I have watched maybe four or five episodes that were specifically ones that I knew people talked about as like these episodes, whatever. And I thought they were pretty good and kind of fun. But Next Generation was really more of my vibe than, sure. than the original series. Adriana, we are here today to talk, yes, about Deep Space Nine, but specifically Dick Miller in Deep Space Nine. What has been your familiarity with Dick Miller as an actor? Do you have any Dick Miller roles that spring to mind when people say his name? I have to mention Gremlins just because sure. that was probably my first exposure to Dick Miller. I watched that movie a lot as a kid. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, the, the films that come to mind for me now when I think of Dick Miller, definitely A Bucket of Blood, mm. definitely Chopping Mall, Terminator, Still Gremlins. <laughs> um, you know, those those are the movies that I think of when I think of Dick Miller. What do you think is the appeal of him as an actor? You know, one of the great things about seeing him in this Star Trek episode, and this is not a knock against some of the films that we've covered so far, is that there's no gimmick to it, right? It's not, hey, Dick Miller's here. It's not, hey, you know, let's put Dick Miller in because we're the director of, uh, you know, we, we worked with Roger Corman in the 70s and he was there all the time. This is him playing a role as a character actor and doing a really good job of it. What, what do you like about Dick Miller as a performer? Well, I just think he has a lot of charisma and presence. Um, but I mean, honestly, though, for me, it's just that I've seen him in so many movies <laughs> that whenever he shows up, it just feels like it feels very familiar and comfortable. Like, oh, yes. Dick Miller is here. I feel at home. Yeah. I, 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 it makes you feel kind of part of something bigger. It's great. You know, we, we've called it a secret handshake in the past. But the secret handshake can be both good and bad, right? It's like uh, watching a, a movie and Lloyd Kaufman shows up. Uh, it's like, hey, we know what this is all about, but it's not always representative of a certain level of quality. But I think Dick Miller, he, because of the history that ties into it, the fact that he, his career goes back you know, right to the 1950s, there's just so much there that it's all kind of uh, uh, bringing with him when you see him appear in some of these roles, especially. But again, we'll be talking about him in Deep Space Nine in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to talk to you, Adriana, about Deep Space Nine as a show. For a lot of people who um, were, you know, watching syndicated sci-fi in the 1990s during the, the years that Next Generation was on, and particularly the years immediately afterwards, Deep Space Nine, even though it got very good ratings, in the minds of a lot of people, was somewhat maligned at the time. It just, I think in, in the minds of some people, it just wasn't the next generation, so it was something worse, right? Uh, right. And its reputation since then has really increased to the point where there was even a documentary about the series just a few years back. But even now, it doesn't feel like it gets the same level of respect. It never, you know, it never transitioned into major motion pictures. It never got a high-definition uh, resolution you know, release afterwards. It wasn't seen as financially viable. Even now, there's, I think, a a belief, maybe in the mainstream, that it doesn't have, um, it doesn't have the uh, kind of general appeal that the next generation does. So, for you, what makes Deep Space Nine so great? Oh my God, where to even begin? Can I be <laughs> long winded here? Because please, I don't think that I can be can uh, brief in my. I, I want to hear you be long-winded. I should say, by the way, and make it very clear right from the start, I've seen the entire Deep Space Nine series. I watched it uh, a number of years ago. I love it. I think it's the superior Star Trek series of all Star Trek series, yes. including The Next Generation. It is the one that I have uh, the most affection for. But I also see, 
you know, why it could be difficult for some people to get into. Yeah, I, I am completely with you. First of all, I want to say uh, the reason that it was poorly received by fans at the time it aired had a lot to do with the fact that it it felt that people felt like it it did not feel like Star Trek because it was taking place in one central location. You know, it wasn't characters going out on a ship and exploring, you know, boldly going. And so that really kind of alienated people. Uh, I think much like now with some of the reaction to the newer uh, Trek series, I think there was a, a bit of a, a knee-jerk reactionary element as well. People didn't like seeing a black captain. I mean, you can go and find these archive posts from like Usenet or whatever. Absolutely. Where yeah, people are... Groups, I remember I was on those news groups at the time. Yeah, I remember the reaction. People were really pissed about Cisco. And uh, yeah, so it was a combination of things. But uh, as far as like why I think that Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek, why it's my favorite. Uh, so I've, I've seen every iteration of Star Trek that exists. I've seen every show. Uh, several of them I've seen all the way through more than once. Uh, I've, I've seen every movie. So I feel very comfortable and confident in saying that Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek. And I'll... As far as why, I'll start with the characters. I think Deep Space Nine has far and away the most emotionally rich, well-drawn, and complex cast of characters in the franchise. Every single character, main cast and supporting cast, goes on a journey across the show's seven seasons. And it's incredibly satisfying as a viewer to see these characters grow and evolve. And I feel this huge payoff from my emotional investment and my time investment in the show in a way that I just don't watching through the other shows, or at least not to the same degree. And I think this is uh, this kind of um, uh, feeds into your point, Doug, that you made earlier about this show really paying off. as Like, if you watch it in chronological order, it's really incredible what the writers do with all of these characters. And I mean, we mentioned Worf and O'Brien. Worf and O'Brien get so much more development on Deep Space Nine than they were ever afforded on TNG. Um, <laughs> O'Brien in really, particular it's a doesn't joke. just get... Yeah. O'Brien yeah. not only gets a lot of depth, he also gets, you know, a kind of, it's a cliche, he gets tortured pretty significantly. But it, just because they were able to focus... I mean, why not? Such a great actor who right. really didn't get a lot to do on The Next Generation. But He I sure mean, gets a lot to do on Deep Space Nine. He sure does. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as the characters, another thing I want to point out is that a great many of the characters that were part of Deep Space Nine's ensemble cast are alien characters. And Star mm -hmm. Trek has the tendency to foreground human characters and to present things from the perspective of the Federation. Mm -hmm. And Deep Space mm -hmm. Nine breaks away from that mold to a significant degree. You know, the, the Federation perspective is not so privileged on Deep Space Nine and there's a lot of exploration of how Starfleet and the Federation and its influence are viewed by those on the outside and how Starfleet's efforts to expand across quadrants of the galaxy impact these various societies and you know another thing I really appreciate about Deep Space Nine is that uh, that, that to me gives it an edge over the other series is that it doesn't rely on metaphor and allegory nearly as much as the other Trek series. You know, the writers make a point to deal very directly with various socio-political issues that the other series tend to address 
from some kind of remove. I mean, usually that is through the allegorical use of alien characters and societies as stand-ins for issues facing present-day humanity. Uh, and Deep Space Nine it does utilize that storytelling method as well, but its writers were also very frequently willing to show that these were problems that the Federation and the population of Deep Space Nine, the, the space station, were also facing in the 24th century. You know, there's an explicitly pro-union episode where workers on the station unionize and a character quotes the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> there are several episodes that deal with American racism. You know, there's, there's a late season episode where Cisco and his partner Cassidy are debating... Uh, this 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 holodeck like Cisco doesn't want to participate in a holodeck adventure because it takes place in the 60s and the holodeck program whitewashes the racism of the era. So they have this conversation. These two black characters are having a conversation about uh, the ramifications of fiction misrepresenting historical realities. Like there's a lot of there's so many examples I could use like that. You know, like the Maquis, the Bajoran resistance, and the Dominion War. Uh, that stuff that stuff on the show offers better post 9/11 commentary than most media that is actually made after 9/11 like in that you know through these storylines the show interrogates the ethics and efficacy of torture and security theater and it explores terrorism and blowback among other many other complex issues and it does and explores these issues through a lot of nuance and depth like you know, uh, Deep Space Nine reinforces the idea that a futuristic utopia like that of the Federation cannot exist without constant vigilance and effort. You know, that human beings are flawed and we slip up even with the best intentions and that this is the case even in a much improved future. So I feel like it is a much more realistic um exploration of, of, of Roddenberry's future than some of the other trek series and, and even, even more so than roddenberry himself probably correct would have liked because he was, he was notoriously wanted to make the humanity of the future be as perfect and argument free right. as possible which i mean that just does not make for good drama i'm sorry and no, the writers understood that yeah it's even when they broke those rules on next generation is when it the show <laughs> improved greatly correct uh, and i just have oh, one yeah. more thing to say sure i just want to say and this is a common opinion amongst queer Trek fans, but DC Nine is also the queerest Star Trek series, and that includes uh, the newer shows that actually have textually explicitly queer characters. Like it's just uh, you know, like DC Nine just feels less heteronormative for a number of reasons. And I could, we could have an entire podcast episode just unpacking this, but yeah. So I love DC Nine. And I, I just think it goes so much harder than every other Star Trek. It's better written than every other Star Trek. And Liam, like, honestly, you should revisit Deep Space Nine because I just think it is so up your alley in so many ways. Wow. I mean, obviously, Liam, a very passionate defense of Deep Space Nine. Sure, now, sure, sure, please sure, sure. tell us why you hate Deep Space Nine so much. I don't. Okay. I don't hate it. I will say, when I was a kid... This is going to be so blasphemous. No, it, you. you know what? I bet. Well, no, please continue. I want to hear what you. This have. is going to be so blasphemous to you. I have Adrian. a feeling a lot of people are going to have your experience. Like, no, not what I'm about to say. When okay. I was a kid, part of my issue with Deep Space. Nine, this is the worst thing. I can't believe I'm about to say this. Part of my issue with Deep Space Nine is that I just felt like Babylon Five was better. 
I mean, that's not an uncommon. No, that uh, is opinion. not an uncommon opinion. That's what a, a lot of I mean, people say. Deep Space Nine rips off Babylon Five. I don't think that's true. I didn't feel that way, but I did feel like, look, I got Next Generation is still going. Then I've got two space station shows, and I just find one of these space station shows more exciting than the other one. Now, chances are, some of the very things that you're talking about, Adriana, were less interesting to me when I was like 16 or 17 or whenever this right. shit was on. So maybe like I just didn't pick up on that. I will say. What you're saying about the more direct message as opposed to the metaphor, I bet is a turnoff for some people. Like mm-hmm. I bet the 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 yeah. the built-in value, relate. the built-in value that you are describing is probably a bummer for some people. In some cases, I would agree with them. When it comes to sci-fi, I'm kind of more inclined towards you, Adriana, where it's like come on, we don't need a metaphor here. People have problems. Why do we need to hide this behind something? So I'm with you on that one. The other thing I was going to say, Adriana, is when it comes to, I I get what you're saying. And in theory, narratively, I agree with you that uh, this idea that like the humans have now progressed past conflict and all conflicts are external and they never have to like argue or have issues, that doesn't work dramatically to to a large extent. However, I know a a number of people And I was kind of on this wave a teeny bit, though I wouldn't have put this language on it. I know a lot of people who look to Star Trek in its purest form as their, like, communist future they dream of, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. for them, what Western media has always failed at is imagining a non-capitalist future, that all futures are in some way capitalist. And even though there are markets in Star Trek's future, because you can fabricate so many things, especially in the next generation, markets are really just for like high-end items and everything else is, is communist. And so for them, I think while they want there to be some conflict, because these are people, the amount of conflict on Deep Space Nine was like too much for them because it was like, you're muddying the waters of my communist future that I want to you know, believe in. And I think for me as a kid, I did kind of like the purity of next generation sometimes, how like the conflicts, there would be whole episodes of next generation where like the conflict was almost non-existent, you know, like there was actually nothing at stake, you know? And Mm -hmm. I kind of loved those episodes as much as I loved the episodes where it was like the Borg is going to eat everyone's brains. Those were also fun. I I mean, Liam, again, again, not to give anything away, there are D Space Nine episodes like that, including ones where they just play baseball for the entire <laughs> totally, totally, totally. But yeah. I, I think, I think, it's just, I think, I think that... Space Nine is more realistic about how that would be an attainable reality, and it's that you know sometimes a Stalin pops up. We got to keep that shit in check. Some people don't want that. They don't want a more realistic. They want the fantasy. Yeah. To, to, to they don't want to see that even once they achieve their futuristic luxury communism, they'll still be <laughs> actual problems. No, Adriana, all problems are capitalism. So therefore, once you have. Uh, things where you can make your own resources, all problems will go away and they won't have to worry about anything anymore. And again, I, I, as I'm saying it, I'm like, well, that sounds like the most boring shit ever, but I get why it's appealing to some people. For me now, just watching these two episodes, which I remembered and loved, I thought, oh yeah, Adrian is right. I do need to rewatch the series. And I think now as an adult, the episodes that maybe I am less excited about, I'll be pulled into a little more, especially because I have a lot of affection for some of these characters. When as we as we discuss the episode, we'll talk about which characters <laughs> I do not have affection for. But most of the characters I find really appealing. And to this day, Cisco is my favorite main person. Period. Oh, Cisco, the best Starfleet captain. Yeah. Or at least the one that we see like heading up a show. And that's yeah. another thing that's yeah. great about this show is that 
this show has a very revolutionary depiction of black fatherhood, like for the yeah. 90s. Absolutely. It is a huge deal. And we and not only just how Cisco like Cisco's relationship with his son Jake, but we later meet Joseph Cisco, Cisco's dad. And so we see these three generations of, of black men. Uh it, it, I don't I just find it very moving and it was it was just super not common for I also, television I think that at a, that time. That the fact that Avery Brooks himself was playing that role had oh, a lot of influence on how sure. that character was presented because he is not an actor that backs down easily for the life of me though i'll never understand why someone would work in captain cisco's father's restaurant <laughs> doesn't make any sense i know i've read lots of defenses of why you would have you'd be able to have staff in a restaurant i've, that I've wondered work. this too like how do you even have a restaurant like what do you charge people like i don't i don't understand like it's best not to think about it yeah, uh, i do want to mention but he, his dad run, has like a like a creole restaurant in new orleans <laughs> That's the whole thing with the the Cisco's. They love cooking. They sure do, and baseball, as as comes up in this particular episode. Now, I do want to mention to listeners who might already be yelling at their device that they're listening to this on. This is not Dick Miller's only Star Trek appearance at all. He actually appeared in the first season of Star Trek: The Next Generation in episode eleven, an episode called "The Big Goodbye," which is a holodeck episode, a film noir kind of tinged one where Picard goes into the holodeck, and he's he's played this character a few times where he plays like a noirish Humphrey Bogart styled detective. Uh, this particular episode is. Greatly influenced by the Maltese Falcon, one of my favorite movies. Uh, Miller only has a very small role, actually kind of a surprisingly small role, as a newspaper vendor who talks to Captain Picard about baseball. Actually references specifically the same record that they go on to talk about in this episode, though I don't know if that was uh, pointed and, and intentional. And he actually has some funny interactions with Data. He has a lot more to do in this two-parter that we're going to be talking about, but I don't want to discount that one. The other thing is the first season of The Next Generation is notoriously not good, while this two-parter is one of the most beloved in the entire uh, Deep Space Nine, if not entire Star Trek franchise. But before we get to that, we got to get to something very important. On the last episode of You Don't Know Dick, or I should say the most recent episode, we talked about a music video. Liam, do you remember this? Yes. Yeah, it was a music video for John Mellencamp. Uh, singing a cover of Van Morrison's Wild Night. Wild uh, Night. That's right. Very good. <laughs> and that video, I can't even remember what we mentioned at the time, that video was directed by Jonathan Kaplan, who also directed White Line Fever, which we've covered on this very show. Well, Jonathan Kaplan directed actually something like a half dozen John Mellencamp videos, but before he did that, he started his music video directing career with a song called Infatuation, by the great Rod Stewart. I actually have a plot summary for the music video. A woman moves into his apartment complex and a tenant becomes obsessed with her. He constantly takes pictures of her. Her bodyguard and a gangster complicate his infatuation. And the gangster in this music video is played by one Dick Miller. Uh, our guest today, Adriana Gober, uh, This was I threw this at you at the last moment. I don't expect you to be an expert on Rod Stewart or his career or this music video in particular. But knowing that you are someone who has a lot of interest and talent in music, what do you think about Rod Stewart? To be honest, I don't really have much of an opinion on Rod Stewart. I mean, I know uh, his hit singles as a solo artist. Sure. I know he was also in the band Faces, I think it was That's called. right, the Faces and the Small Faces. Uh, they have a song that is very sympathetic to gay people. I forget what that song is. Uh, it's about a murder, is it? Is that what the one is? Or am I thinking of something else? No, I think that's no. the right song. Adriana, if you had to close your eyes and think of three things about Rod Stewart, what are the first three things that are come to, uh, would come to mind? Even? The first thing that comes to mind is my mom, because she likes sure. Rod Stewart. 
Second thing that comes to mind is the Revolting Cox cover of Do You Think I'm Sexy? <laughs> and been- I guess the third thing that comes to mind is... I'm pretty sure there's, like, a photo of him with... No, who is... I? Never mind. I think it was David Bowie. and I, There's a photo of David Bowie with Tina Turner, and I want to say Rod Stewart. But... I may be misremembering. So there's really only two things that immediately come to mind when I think of Rod Stewart. And they don't really have anything to do with Rod Stewart directly. <laughs> I always think of his beautiful locks. His hairstyle is always very unique and interesting, including in this music video where it is threatening to overtake his entire head. Oh, yeah. He has that feathered hair. Yes. He looks almost like a chicken of some kind. Liam O'Donnell. You are also a big fan of music yourself, uh, punk music generally, which I don't, I wouldn't necessarily consider Rod Stewart a punk musician. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's an understatement for sure. <laughs> but, you know, the 1980s was a cruel time for a lot of the popular musicians of the late 60s and 70s. And uh, what did you think of, uh, of Rod Stewart? And uh, what do you think of Rod Stewart generally? And what do you think of this song? Uh, Rod Stewart generally is like a. Uh a fun cultural curiosity that I don't want to be exposed to too often. It's like, Oh yeah, that's a thing. You know, this, uh, skeleton singing a song about being sexy next to a fireplace is like not upsetting at all. Uh, is is the skeleton Rod Stewart? Yeah. He's an, I mean, Rod Stewart from day one has looked like uh, a reanimated corpse. And sure. now uh, we're watching this video where the reanimated corpse has like gotten one too many tan jobs and is looking a bit leathery as well. Mm-hmm. And he's staring from a window at like, well, we looked it up, a, a woman who's actually not that much younger than him. In the range of rock stars, actually, uh, eight or nine years is, is pretty rational, actually. That's, that's yeah, well that woman, that the, woman, by the way, Kay Lenz, from, also from White Line Fever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's way within the range here. But the, the context of the video is still one in which uh, a man's obsession and desire to engage in sexual activity is interesting enough for a song. And I just think that's just not the case. Like, there's no meat to this song other than his infatuation, which in the context of the video is just he just sees her. You know what I mean? Like, uh, at least if they had had a conversation where, like, they said flirty things to each other, then the infatuation would be more than just a visual thing. But, like, this is a visual relationship. He's stalking a woman. Yeah. And she gives him a boner. And that's enough meat for a song, I guess. And uh, <laughs> Sorry, the boner is the meat that you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the whole thing just was, like... How is this real? Like, how is this a real thing? And, like, why are the 80s so weird? And knowing him as a star of the past who's now trying to cling to relevance, even his outfit. Like, if we were making a movie, Doug, set in the 80s, and it's like, yeah, your character is going to be still relevant but kind of nearing irrelevant uh, aging rock star, Uh they would wear that fucking outfit, man. It's, like, so ridiculous. Everything about the video is ridiculous in a way that he couldn't have known at the time but watching it now i thought this is such a fucking caricature and it's beyond embarrassing it's just a, a, a ridiculous thing and it has dick miller in it for two seconds so i had to fucking watch it you can we talk about how corny it. the song is sonically too like it has oh, a yes. very dates 80s production like the gated yeah. drums the cheesy roland bell sounds it, yeah, it's. Just I'll be honest. I'll be honest with you, Adrian. I have come around. Like I've it. come around on a lot of the '80s production generally. Not so much in this particular case. Uh, yeah, it, I, I would say I, we're we're on the same page there. 
By the way, the song that Adriana was referring to earlier is The Killing of Georgie. Yeah, The uh, Killing of Georgie, which is based on a... I, I looked it up, too, while you oh. guys were talking. Yeah, it's based on a real event. Like, um, a gay guy who was friends with The Faces was murdered, and Rod Stewart wanted to pay tribute to him in a song. I'm going to be a lot more sympathetic generally to Rod Stewart than both of you because I am a big fan of the faces and particularly that genre, that era of, of mod music in the late 60s or mid 60s, the late 60s. And I thought that Rod Stewart had a great voice uh, in the faces. He has a lot of singles from that era that I really enjoy. This was his like super fame days, right? His post disco era where he was a golden god. And what you will see in comments on his music videos at this time period is that people think that he is the sexiest thing on two legs. I don't they necessarily. Sure do. They really do. They love Rod Stewart. And you know why? It's because when he does concerts, he likes to kick a football out into the crowd. And when I say football, of course, I mean a soccer ball. Adriana, what did you think of this music video? Um, Try not to use the words creepy or unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it was well shot. I, mean, <laughs> I I was a little bit I was a little bit confused at certain points. Like there were there were some interesting editing choices where a person is standing there and suddenly there's like a rapid edit and they're not there anymore. It that that lended a, a certain air of mystery to it where I was trying to figure out what was going on. Um, it, it is dreamlike. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like sure, a David we can Lynch go with that. <laughs> it's a dream. I think that's giving a dream. it a little bit too much credit. But well, Jeff Beck shows up. What do you think about that? The late Jeff Beck, the great guitarist, shows up? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this before we recorded, but he basically, it, like, he's obviously not actually playing anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty, I, I, I'm pretty confident that Jeff Beck knew how to play a guitar. Yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty confident in that, too. Liam, but any I final think maybe th- he could have tried harder to mime actually playing the guitar in the music it, video. But. There's a part where he puts the guitar behind his head, and generally that's a very cool guitarist move. A, it doesn't look very cool in this particular case, but also B, it's like he's trying to avoid making it so clear that what he's playing doesn't match up with what we're hearing at that particular moment. I have uh, to say, I did not anticipate that I would be coming on the Stick Miller podcast to talk about DJ Sign, and we would be spending so much time talking about Rod Stewart. <laughs> Liam, what does Dick Miller do in this music video? Wears a hat. Yeah. He doesn't have any lines, but then again, it is a music video. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just looks like, I guess he's supposed to be the gangster boyfriend of the object of Rod Stewart's boner. Yes, and so, infatuation. Uh, and so he wears his suit in a couple shots, and he yep. points at the camera, and that's about it. That's about what he does. He's, uh, hey, we need we need a uh, recognizable old man for this vi- for this video. How about Dick Miller? <laughs> I don't even think they care that much about the recognizable part. I but... agree, because <laughs> they don't they don't show him for very long. He also does get to ride a carousel at the end. Adriana, what did you think about that? Dick Miller riding a carousel. Uh, well, it was amusing because he's kind of like mugging. Yes. The camera and like he's making all these goofy faces. Yeah, at that point, was fun. At that point, Rod Stewart had gotten punched in the face. My favorite part of the video. And then Dick Miller <laughs> uh, was thumbing his nose at him as he went around in the carousel. But what we find at the end is that this woman that Rod Stewart is infatuated with, she doesn't care about Dick Miller. She doesn't care about this private investigator, and she certainly doesn't care about the voyeur played by Rod Stewart. She cares about some other guy who she drives off with, and she waves. She knew what was going on the whole time. I guess it validates the whole thing. 
it makes Rod Stewart look like a big dork. What do you think about that, Adriana, at the end of the video? Well, you know, I can appreciate when an artist doesn't take themselves too seriously and they, uh, you know, have some some jokes at their own expense in their music video. So, Do you think when he wrote that song, Do You Think I'm Sexy, that he was being somewhat ironic? Or do you think he was? it was supposed to be an ego boost thing? Because people do think that Rod Stewart is very sexy. Well, I have to say, when you were talking about that earlier, I had the thought that, like, oh, was he being meta with that song? Like, was he commenting on how people perceive him? But to be mm-hmm. honest, I really don't know much about... I don't, I don't think I know enough about Rod Stewart uh, to definitively say whether or not he was, like, being completely yeah. there is a, with that song. I, I know there's a lot of humor in the faces songs that he, he... Some of them that he performed. So maybe, maybe it's supposed to be ironic. I do have to say that... The way that he looked in the era where he was singing, do you think I'm sexy? It's even kind of more unpleasant than he looks here. Yes, agreed. <laughs> it, it actually makes me a little ill when I watch the music video for that song. I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Liam, any final thoughts on this music video? Except that you want to move on so we can talk about Star Trek. I mean, I, I'm glad that Rod Stewart was an early advocate for the rights of the undead. But otherwise, I'm uninterested. You really think he looked... You know, uh, you are older, Liam, and so am I, than Rod Stewart was when he made this music video. Wow. Seriously? Yeah. Significantly so in both of our cases. Well, well I mean, I think Rod Stewart probably years. lived a lot harder than either of you. I don't know. <laughs> Please don't be presumptuous about how, how hard That's I true. live. <laughs> That's true. Liam, I'll tell you what. I'll let both of you off the hook. Let us take a break. After all that talk about Star Trek, you know what we got to do? Talk about Star Trek. After this break, we're going to talk about Deep Space Nine, Past Tense 1. And then, after we finish talking about the first half, we're going to talk about the second half, just like it makes sense. We'll be back right after this. So what do we do with him? I don't know. You can let us go. All right. Vin, they saved our lives back there. How can we explain what happened to them? Give me your ID cards. Fuck it. We'll switch these for two of the casualties. As far as anybody knows, you both died here. Is that okay with you, Bill? Thanks. My pleasure. Come on, let's get you out of here. Anything else we can do for you? There is one more thing. Name it. Tell people the truth about what happened here. I would have done that anyway. Cisco, Bashir, and Dax are accidentally sent to San Francisco in the 21st century due to a transporter malfunction and must figure out how to return without changing the timeline. It's Star Trek D Space Nine's Past Tense 1 of 2, which first aired on January 2nd, 1995, directed by Reza Badiyi. Uh, actually, a very, very interesting gentleman. I was looking into his career f- for the purpose of this episode, and not only was he one of the most prolific uh, directors of television really in history, he also did the opening uh, credits for Mission Impossible, Hawaii Five O, Get Smart. A very accomplished gentleman who unfortunately passed away in 2011. The writer on this episode is Robert Hewitt Wolf, uh, wrote the teleplay based on a story by himself and Ira Stephen Bear, uh, really one of the architects of DS9 generally. Uh, in the case of Robert Wolf, also one of those architects, he co wrote 30 episodes of DS9 and would later go on to develop and produce Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. 
Uh, I won't go through all of the cast of Deep Space Nine. I know that Liam said he has some difficulties with some of these cast members. Maybe it's the characters more than the cast. But of course, we do have Avery Brooks in this episode, Alexander Siddig as Julian Bashir, uh, Terry Farrell as Dax. And those are the, really the three main characters, even though we also get a lot of time with uh, Kira and uh, O'Brien on the ship trying to get these characters back. That's enough preamble. We will get to Dick Miller in just a moment. But starting with our guest today, Adriana, what is great or not about this first half of Past Tense? Oh, man. Okay. Uh, well, I mean... Th- both Would you of, consider both this episode part- representative of the quality of Deep Space Nine? Yes. Okay. For sure. And I think it's also representative of the kind of political commentary that we often get in Deep Space Nine. Um, as far as, like, what is so good episode, where do I even begin? I mean, this episode feels just, like, too real to me, almost, because of just how well it captures... Um, the failings of our like capitalist society and in, 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 in taking care of people and, and in the way that so many people fall through the cracks by design. Um, I mean, I think it does a really good job of, ex- of, of illustrating how overtaxed our social services are in this country as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, this episode also very subtly explores like racial dynamics, which we'll, we can get into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, particularly, particularly with the way that Jedzia's experience in 21st century San Francisco is so radically different from Cisco and Bashir's. Um, and yeah, um, I mean, I think I, I guess I'll just leave it there for 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 now. And sure, get there's into lot, specifics. Uh, uh, what, what you were kind of uh, what we'll elaborate on, but what you what you were mentioning there, and maybe I didn't uh, get across in the plot summary, is that these characters are sent back in time to 2024 at the time. Of course, this episode was made in 1994, even though it aired in 95. You know, well into the future. But one of the things that this episode or both episodes is best known for is how kind of accurately to a point. They were able to predict where society was going and some of its failings. In the chronology of Star Trek, there was, you know, riots that led to eventually a World War III. And it's the the fallout after World War III that led to the luxury space communism that Liam was referring to earlier. But we get to see, you know, some of that downfall on a small scale because of this riot. And also some of the people who were meant to... Uh, inspire people afterwards. And that's one of the things that this show does really well, which is balance, you know, really dark material that, but still with inspirational and, and positive material, though this particular episode, there's a lot of darkness to it. And one of the things, as I said, it's known for is its accuracy in its predictions. But before we get to that, Liam, as, as someone who maybe isn't as familiar with some of these characters and some of the plot, you said that you had seen this previously. What was your experience revisiting it? It was really great. In fact, I was, I mean, I think it's worth acknowledging the part that's not great, which is, um, the B plot. Uh, I wasn't even going to say that. I was going to say how realistic, I mean, 
to, to for context, in case by some magic trick of uh, the human race exists into the future and someone's listening to this episode, uh, in 2023, many mayors and governors are suggesting uh, special camps where homeless people can go outside of the city, uh, special areas. that Those areas might even operate as a kind of sanctuary for those people, huh? Wow. It's so fucked that watching this, I'm sure when I watched this in 1995, I was like, oh, that's doesn't seem that implausible. You know, that's a future I could see happening. So to be watching it in 2023, it'd be like, oh, man, our computers are cooler, but we're still trying to figure out how to separate poor people and put them in a pen and then be like, I'm sure they're fine in there. It's fucked. It was it was yeah. the, the, my most immediate response was. Oh shit! We're still having this conversation. Yeah, the strange thing and is, the is sanctuary like somebody... in the name is totally deceptive because it literally they, they just want to get rid of these unsightly homeless people that they don't want to see, uh-huh. they don't want to uh-huh. acknowledge. They just want to herd them into a place where they never have to see or hear from them, and that in that kind of inhumanity is something that this ep- these two episodes interrogate pretty heavily. And something that obviously already existed in the time that they were making this episode. But it's so strange to see something that's meant to be a cautionary tale for the future. And we're living in almost the worst case version of what they, you know, this was to say, hey, this will happen if we stay on this path. Let's make sure we don't. And then we did. And it did happen. Anyway, sorry, sorry, Liam, please continue. Anyway, so that was a That part was a bummer. Overall, realizing I had seen it before and that it was an episode I really enjoyed. Um that all made me very happy. Uh, I forgot how. So, you know, we have this exciting story of them in this area. And then uh, then we have the folks on the ship trying to figure out how. Akira and O'Brien. Yeah, and are, Odo. are trying to figure out how to find them. And that part, I had forgotten how often these shows, Star Trek being one of them. They just sort of spew out this kind of stuff that doesn't make any sense, and it's like techno babble. Techno yeah. babble. Oh, no, we the chronotons. I estimated. <laughs> I estimated that there's only ten places they could be with the chronotons and the blah 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 blah. Is that your Irish accent? <laughs> no, no, no. That's I don't my. Know what that hell is. That's my. I have to say these lines. Chronoton is code for time travel, and yeah. like right, right, anytime right, you hear right. them talking about chronoton particles, yes, they've got some some kind of like temporal property. So, like, if there's chroniton particles detected, you know some time travel shit is happening or will happen or has happened and we haven't found out yet. No, but this is what I'm saying because I haven't watched a show in so long. And the second he said chronotons, I'm like, they're going to take a while to figure out that it's a time thing, huh? They're going to take a while. <laughs> Every time you guys talk about fucking chronotons, it's a, it's a time thing. But they're all going, yeah, I don't know what happened. I mean, what could it possibly be? I don't know. There are a lot of chronoton particles, but I'll run some tests. Get the fuck out of here. So that aspect of it was a little bit frustrating to me. But I think that's just a symptom of all of these shows. That's how they handle these. And it makes sense, right? Like... There is something refreshing that on multiple Star Trek shows, something goes wrong and a bunch of people go, let's do science and like try to figure it out. Now, the science is utter bullshit, but that doesn't matter. It's still a lesson in like a way to handle it. Whereas other shows, it's like, oh, no, they're lost. We should go break and burn things until someone just tells us what until someone has an information dump for us to figure it out because we couldn't possibly figure it out on our own. So I do appreciate that. But as a viewer who hasn't watched a Star Trek show in a long time, it was a little like, 
oh, we're just going to... And then when they keep going... Well, this that's not this episode. I won't go there. But th- them figuring it out. The only part I liked was when the whole timeline shifts. Because I thought that's that's a commitment to a to a premise, right? To be like... Oh, they did something, and now the whole timeline is fucked. Yeah, I kind of like destroyed that. the universe. Yeah, because of one I, thing that I was happened. like, yeah. "Fuck, that's quite the." It felt well. And, and, uh, You're talking you know. about when then Kira and O'Brien and Odo realized that all of like the Starfleet communication towers and the satellite and everything uh-huh, uh-huh. just straight up disappear, and they realize like, oh. Cisco and Bashir must have, and Jedzia must have done something yeah. to alter the timeline where now Starfleet doesn't exist and we are the only reming. Literally, the closest space signal they could get is is Robulans, which you know is like a In bad Alpha thing. Centauri. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I appreciated that part of that, but most for me, the episode is really uh, Cisco and Bashir in it, you know, exploring this fucking escape from New York nightmare sure. scenario that they're in. Uh, which is interesting because I alluded earlier to I have characters that aren't my favorite. While I have a deep love for Cisco, I've always disliked Bashir since I was a kid. I just don't love him as a character. And so it was weird. I spent all this time with him in this episode. Really liked it, actually. Was really into it. Uh, but as, but my memories of the show are like, oh, that doctor gets on my nerves a little bit. I'm not so well, okay. I'm a fan. You were not this alone. Seems like I'm sure, a good... Yeah, I'm sure Adrian is going to add to that. But I'm just going to explicitly say... That for a lot of the early seasons of Deep Space Nine, that character was widely disliked. And if you were watching at that timely, which it seems like you were at least sporadically, maybe you picked up on that. And this episode was seen as somewhat of a turning point. But I'm sure Adriana can give more information. Yeah, so I have a few thoughts and a quotation to share on this subject. Oh, wow. So Bashir was widely disliked, like within the show's first couple of seasons. And like part of it, what I think, well, a big part of it was the writers. At that point, we're not really sure what to do with him. Yeah. So they were just kind of trying a bunch of stuff. But one of the things they tried for some reason was that Bashir was just going to be, like, obnoxiously, like, pursuing Jadzia, even though she makes it clear multiple times that she's not interested at all. So he just seems like a creep. So obviously that's not going to endear him to a lot of viewers. Um, But... Yeah, his character definitely improves a lot over the course of the show, over the over the next five seasons. And Alexander Siddig, who played Dr. Bashir, uh, he is quoted in the Deep Space Nine Companion, which is a book that was published uh, at the end of the show's run that has a lot of really great behind-the-scenes detail and interviews with the cast and the crew and the writers and so forth. Uh, so Alexander Siddig is quoted in the Deep Space Nine Companion talking about this very uh, issue and how this show, this episode was kind of a turning point for the character. So I'm just going to read that quotation here because I think it's relevant and it provides some uh, valuable insight. So he said, <clears throat> this show, meaning these two episodes, was the end of the old Bashir and the beginning of the new, more responsible Bashir. Bashir had proved to everyone and himself that he can handle very tricky situations with almost no backup and no gizmos, not even the shotgun Cisco had. It became conceivable that Bashir would be your first or second choice on an away team if you were going on a combat mission. I think they were a renaissance pair of shows for Bashir. So Alexander Siddig certainly agrees that the... This couple of episodes was a, a real turning point for his character, becoming more likable and, and gaining more dimension, that he wasn't just this kind of, like, pathetic, 
new kid who, I mean, when he shows up on the station, you know, the first thing he says is he makes a comment about how he can't wait to practice frontier medicine. And he says that within earshot of Kira, who was Bajoran, and she was a member of the Bajoran resistance. So, you know, she lived through this horrible occupation of her world and, uh, you know, the subjugation of her people. And she hears this, like, you know, hot, like, uppity Starfleet officer who thinks he's, like, you know, so important because he's Starfleet coming into this backwater station and she does not let it go at all. Like, she really lets him have it. And so the, this character of Bashir really comes a long way from that point in the the pilot episode and the these two episodes were kind of the beginning of that evolution of his character and once they pair him with garrick then the sky's the limit from there yeah well they pair him <laughs> with garrick from from like from the second episode like it's really really early on and like honestly his his scenes with garrick are some of the best stuff that he has on the show and i think sidig would agree with that. I mean, he and Andrew Robinson have amazing chemistry and I'm not going to, I'm just going to leave it there. Cause honestly, I could, <laughs> I could just start just talking about that endlessly because their relationship <laughs> is so good. And Garrick is my favorite Star Trek character of all time. So uh, I think both actors do very well here. Uh, I mean, they, they have to carry the show and, and that's not a criticism of Terry Farrell uh, or, or what she has to do. It's just, that's a lot less interesting than them investigating this sanctuary and the, the difficulties that are going on within it. Uh, some of the critics at the time and actually still have been um, down on this episode or these two episodes because of something that you really, you were referring to Adriana, that it doesn't uh, work with metaphor. It's not about aliens. It's about human beings on earth in 2024 and some people thought it was too on the nose maybe it was too leftist maybe it was too liberal uh i i mean this is a, a star trek despite what some people <laughs> have to say has always been a left-leaning uh uh property but you know this is this goes even further than some people might be comfortable with what do you think about those criticisms adriana i think those criticisms are criticisms are bullshit uh and I mean, you hear that a lot now with the newer yeah, sure Star do. Trek shows. That, you know, so. Star Trek is too political now. Why doesn't it do the thing that Star Trek has always done and be so subtle and use allegory? And I'm like, you're telling me that let that be your last battlefield is a sub- subtle political commentary? I mean, let like let's be real here. Like, Star Trek has episodes where that that are more subtle and more nuanced and then it has episodes that are incredibly on the nose and that is true of every single series in the franchise um but i think i mean to your point it has certainly always had had like a progressive and left-leaning bent so if like that's your issue then i'm sorry but like star trek is not the franchise for you uh and you know uh for a show that has always pushed boundaries and taken risks when it comes to inclusivity and representation, like, I don't know how you can, and, and also just like in taking a stand on issues, I don't know how you, anyone can seriously be upset that an episode of Star Trek is, 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 is making, um, a, a very, uh, explicit political point. I just don't, I don't relate to that or understand it in, in any way. There's been an increasingly popular 
area of thought, trying to convince others, trying to write up an explanation of how Star Trek has actually been conservative the entire time. Not I... only is that very difficult to understand, particularly in the vision of Gene Roddenberry, but to watch Deep Space Nine and try to make that argument. I think when they, you know, if you cherry pick, you could probably come up with some good examples. But if you look at the big picture, it's and these even all you need to do is look at these two episodes to know that that just doesn't hold weight. How about you, Liam? Do you think it's a little too on the nose in the way that it portrays? Um, the difficulties that the people are encountering here? I mean, no. It's if, if someone comes to Star Trek because they don't want direct engagement, like they feel like Star Trek is really layering its commentary and various analogies and metaphors, I agree with Adriana. That's not a full view. I think sometimes it is much more on the surface and people are kind of fooling themselves. Uh, I think that this is um, a good way to handle it. And I think it does something that I think is interesting, which is like a lot of times people don't know how we got to Star Trek, right? Like how did we get to this world? So I think seeing a bit of the history and the strife that sort of led to the kinds of transformations that we see in this future are interesting. I got to say, the only thing I'll disagree with you guys a little bit about is I think there is a bit of a conservatism to this episode, uh, honestly, uh, even though I think overall, of course, it's going to bum out Republicans. But I'm not worried about bumming out Republicans. I'm worried about <laughs> bumming out Democrats. And uh, this is a very 90s Democrat episode because everybody just wants to work. We just want to work. Oh, we just got to work. All we want to do is work. This, this most recent watch through, like there's that conversation between it was like Cisco and uh, oh, I can't remember the character's name, but like the guy who they befriend and the the cop. And that guy is basically like, we just want to have an, we want an honest day's work. We want to be able to like work for a living. And I'm like, okay, I can see how this is a very kind of like a neo-lib. I think that extends to how it portrays the, the privileged people, even though they do have yeah. that conversation with the person that Jack's befriends, you know, they have that where people are just obviously are unaware or do not care, right? Some of them aren't even aware that the sanctuary still even exists. Like it's just not part of their wheelhouse and their privilege and all that sort of thing. And I think they're very careful also to make that group of people very racially diverse at that particular point. Yeah. Even though, even though I think it would be even <laughs> more perfect if they were all white. The fact that the person that she encounters, you're always kind of waiting for that character to show that he's evil because in real life that guy would be evil. Yeah, exactly. I don't mean any totally of that. Fair. I don't I don't mean any of that as a big criticism. It's more how ridiculous it is that people saw this episode were like so bummed out that it's so leftist. And I'm like, it's really not. It's really just showing how easy it is that once you start to dehumanize people like you don't have to be a full out Marxist to be like, hey, uh, the longer we ignore the needs of our fellow citizens, the more right. immured we'll become to their suffering. That's a very, I, again, it's hard to say this in 2023 when we're really living in some of the worst examples of capitalism you could imagine. But you can, as parts of Europe at certain times, only under certain kinds of economic conditions have shown us, you can have a version of capitalism that's less of a dystopian nightmare, right? Like, you don't have to be a full-up Marxist to say, hey, uh, the big cage where we keep all the poor people, that's yeah. a bad idea. You know, like, that's going to go badly for us. And I think this episode, you don't right. have to be ready to march in the 
street to see like the message here is clear and that it's it's insightful. It's still a good insight into the conditions. Uh, but of course, for some assholes, they're going to watch this and be like, this is this is fucking propaganda. This is Leninism. And it's like, it's really not, though. It's like so far from that, actually. It's just pointing out that like, uh, and really that message ends up being like, that if people really see each other and they really understand the suffering, that then they'll do the right thing. Which in 2023 we know, know. is actually that, not true at all. That, that's what I was going to say. The only the big unfortunate thing about this two part, and this is more in the second episode, is the suggestion that if people had it like right up to their face, the suffering of people, that they would then change their ways because they're like, oh, I can't ignore it anymore. But I mean, people see it every day and still ignore it. And I mean, th- that yeah. voice. That these people didn't have in this case. And, you know, there's a, a kind of a uh, nascent version of the Internet that they keep referring to in this, it, it, though it's it's not always easy to get access to. Hey, if you want to hear what a homeless person's experience is, you can do it right now. And you there's a thousand different places to hear it. But, I mean, I live in a city with, with you know, a, a, like tent villages and homeless people that have been, you know, shuttered off into certain areas of the city. That This is my reality. And I don't even live in a major city. So it's yeah, it's a real depressing to watch it as well. Though it's it's just weird to think that this horrible situation that you see in this episode is in some ways shown as being more hopeful than the reality that we're actually experiencing right now. Kind oh of a God, bummer. that's a depressing thought. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that, everybody. Well, let's talk about something a little more positive, which is Dick Miller, who plays the character Vin in this episode. He's one of the security guards who kind of, uh, he seems to patrol around the sanctuary. He's the guy who picks up Cisco and Bashir once they arrive. He thinks of, he, he identifies them partially, maybe probably because of the fact that neither are uh, white, that he brings them right to the sanctuary. He believes that they, you know, are either, I mean, they have those those terms for them, but at the very least that they're unable to um, function in the society outside the sanctuary. And yeah, they he, don't have ID. That's exactly right. They don't have ID, and they seem confused, as they would be with the time travel. Dick Miller's character of Vin is portrayed as very hard-nosed, someone who just works to the letter of the law, doesn't seem to have a lot of sympathy for the people in the sanctuary, and that continues for much of this two-parter, though it, it, he it goes through a transformation at the end. Uh, just focusing on his performance in this episode, starting with you, Adriana, what did you think of Dick Miller as Vin? I mean, I thought he was great. He's kind of doing like his Dick Miller thing. He sure but is. But it works really well for the type of character that he's playing. This and would almost I be thought... like if Mr. Futterman from Gremlins, if at the end he had a change of heart and decided to like immigrants instead. <laughs> 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 but yes, no, yeah. please. <laughs> but yeah, and I like, I kind of like his, uh, the, the sort of like back and forth he has with with Cisco and Bashir well with all the characters really he's got a lot of uh he's like full of piss and vinegar this uh this character and performance <laughs> maybe and that's why his name he, is Ben <laughs> yeah oh maybe <laughs> but he you know like he plays this guard as you said who picks up Bashir and Cisco and kind of makes that makes sure that they get process through this the sanctuary system uh, but then when shit goes sideways and hostages are taken um he i mean he's one of the hostages and then he really starts kind of you know mouthing off yeah and yeah so his character is kind of the source of a lot of tension of these episodes because you know there's a number of instances where you know, it, 
we wonder, like, you know, is something going to happen to the hostages? Is somebody going to die? And a lot of it is because Dick Miller's character is just talking nonstop shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment when we get to the second part of it. But, I mean, it's interesting that I think he's meant to represent a very average person, even if he is, like, an asshole a little bit in this episode, that he's re- supposed to represent, you know, basically the attitude of the people at the time, which is... Sure. The people in the sanctuary deserve to be there. I mean, he he's, he goes face to face with it. He's hardened to it. All the, the difficulties that they have to face. You know, what he says when they're like, hey, you know, what about all the, the long waits for even the most basic amenities? And he's like, hey, it's more overtime for me. He just doesn't see it because, you know, he's, he's focused on himself. He doesn't have that level of empathy that hopefully this episode is about people developing once they realize what's going on in there. How about you, uh, Liam? What did you think of Dick Miller in this episode? I mean, as you guys said, he's doing the Dick Miller thing, but it's great. He's I think it's a perfect casting. Uh, there's one other casting we'll get to in the second episode that I think is also weirdly perfect. Uh, but uh, I think for this, it's like everyone is does their thing. They're all solid. But Dick Miller is really like, for me, just the right choice for this role. Even if, again, it's a very familiar role for him, he's he's he's. Uh, very able to deliver it and so much so that uh, I believe him in the second episode as well. Right. Like, yeah, I believe the arc of who this guy is. He still has a little bit of humanity to him, even if he is very hardened. Sorry, I'm trying to avoid using the word gruff because I use it every episode talking about Dick Miller. But even though he has that hardened nature, you know, he's like cracking wise. He just he's a guy who obviously it's not that he doesn't care about anything. He just doesn't care about the people in this situation. And maybe it's because he's just experienced it for so long. It's something that we see in real life all the time. I think he plays it really real. I think he plays it in a way that, like you were saying, Liam, makes his switch uh, in the next episode a little bit more believable. And speaking of that switch, let's move on to Past Tense Part 2, which first aired on January 9th, 1995. In this episode, Cisco is forced to take the place of a key historical figure on Earth in 2024 in order to preserve the timeline and that character is Gabriel Bell, a very important person in the history of Star Trek that was meant to kind of help spark uh, the things that he was involved in spark, you know, the the people developing this empathy for what's going on in this sanctuary. Generally, he gets killed in the first uh, episode and Cisco has to take his place. That's why, by the way, his death, uh, Gabriel Bell's death is why in the future that we see with, um, with Kira and O'Brien that, that basically Starfleet is wiped out entirely because it just doesn't take place. Directing uh, this episode is Jonathan Frakes, a very familiar name if uh, you're a fan of Deep, of, sorry, of uh, The Next Generation. Uh, this is actually his third and final DS9 credit. He also shows up as an actor on this show, by the way, uh, though not as his Riker character necessarily. Uh, and it's the direction of this episode that secured him the job of directing Star Trek First Contact, a movie that I think a lot of people consider to be the best, the best of the Next Generation movies. Written by Rene Echevarria, who had actually worked on Star Trek The Next Generation previously, but also wrote for a lot of television shows, including Dark Angel and Castle. And he created the show The 4400 for the USA Network, uh, Carnival Row for Amazon, and was showrunner on the show Terra Nova, and also written with Ira Stephen Bear as well. Most of the cast is exactly the same, except there's a few new faces that show up, including, I'm guessing, the one that Liam uh, was referring to earlier, which is Clint Howard notoriously was in a very famous original Star Trek episode from the 1960s as a child, but uh, but appears here in a very memorable role that was originally written for Iggy Pop to play. Liam, going back to your punk connections, and Iggy, and Iggy Pop does show up on Deep Space Nine later, yep. uh, so that, that that does in a very memorable and role as I well. I think the episode is the Magnificent Ferengi. Yes, that that's it. 
<laughs> He's and terrific. Clint Howard yeah. recently appeared in an episode of Strange New Worlds in season two. A really good episode. Well, I mean, the, the only thing missing from this episode is Jeffrey Combs. But, of course, he shows up in Deep Space Nine a couple of times as well before the series. Uh, and we also have an appearance by Deborah Van Valkenburg, who I always think of as the female lead from The Warriors. But uh, that maybe that's just me. I'm going to start with you this time, Liam. Uh, second half of the episode is, is oh, sorry, I should say, the second part of this two-parter is pretty different in the sense that it almost all takes place within one building where the hostages are being held. It, it's very much like a hostage film to a certain extent or a bank robbery type film uh, where you know there's a hostage negotiation. That's Deborah Valkenberg's character. She plays a detective who's trying to negotiate with the quote-unquote terrorists. We have you know the unhinged guy who's always threatening to kill the, uh, the hostages. And then we have um the character of avery brooks playing both cisco and gabriel bell trying to keep everything calm because he knows that these hostages die that's just going to kill the timeline as well liam what'd you think of the episode you know that guy's edgy because of his hat he's got that scary hat on <laughs> and that's how you know he's edgy <laughs> uh it's great i mean there's one part of it that is almost insufferable please which which is them showing up the gag of them showing up in all the different times it's so yeah, annoying. It's, it's like I said, the B plot. Yes, is yes. Just not very good. No. Well, and and to be fair, in that first episode, I it also made me laugh a little bit, but I didn't hate it. Like it's it's it is what it is, whatever. But this part where they're like, we'll just keep showing up, and then it's like, well, we 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 only got one left. Hopefully, this one's right. It's just like yeah. there's so much at stake. The whole motherfucking timeline is at stake with Cisco and Bashir. Like they're really taking it on the chin down there. Dax too, to some extent. They're, they're doing so much that these two being like, "Look, oh, we shot wrong. We're in the sixth. What did they? Th- uh, just quick. What did they think Cisco and Bashir did in the 1960s that destroyed Star? You know what I mean? Like, well, they didn't. <laughs> I, they weren't trying to go to the 1960s. Like I no, think no, no. what I'm were... saying is they know that they did something that destroyed the timeline. And I'm thinking I get that it's like ancient history for them, but what could they have done in 1960s San Francisco that you know what I mean? Like, oh no, they killed the Grateful Dead and now there's no Starfleet. Like what is I think, that? I, th- I think what Adriana is saying, Liam, is that they didn't know that they were going specifically to the nineteen sixties, that there were just right. ten time periods that they were going to. No, they did because he no, chose I know a what time period. Tra- yeah, Later, but they were did trying see- to f- Find Sorry. where Cisco and Bashir were. Like what? No, what no, no, year? no, 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 no. They picked some that they thought were likely. How was the '60s likely? What happened? Oh uh, well, 60s? maybe it's because like you had like the sexual revolution and like student protests and things. So maybe they thought something was happening. I mean, I, I'm just going to throw it out there. Maybe they ended up in the 1960s and stayed there until the 2000s, and that's how it happened, right? It all oh, could have yeah, happened. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Kind of, you, they don't know what the timing is over time. That's true, Doug. I hadn't the, thought the about weird, the link. The weirder thing is the idea of time travel, but also that time is moving forward in the episode that we're watching, so that when they arrive. At the, it's at the point that we're watching as opposed to what, you know, you think that if you're going to show up in 2024 when this is happening, it's not just at the moment that we've been watching up to. It could be at any point. Right. They could have showed up and, and, and got there before they killed Gabriel Bell. That's a good point, too. I haven't thought of that. Yeah. But whatever. I don't think they could be that accurate. It, there's a lot of techno babble to explain right, the 10. Right, right, right. But what you're what you're getting at, Liam, is exactly right, which is the tension of, oh, we can only check, you know, five of this 10 or however many it was. And if we don't get to the one 
where they are at, we cannot save them. And we only, you know, and once we've used up those tries, that's the end of the world to a certain extent. I think that's a tension that they don't play around with enough because they lose it in the comedy of them yeah. going to the 1960s and having two hippies that are stone. Yeah, all, all the stakes seems to be with Cisco and Bashir in that yeah. room, which don't be wrong, that's great. And I love that. But I wish there had been a little more tension. Maybe they felt like if, it, if all of it was tense, it's like too exhausting of an episode. I don't know. I loved them interacting with this uh, police officer who clearly has no power and can't help them in any uh-huh. way. Uh, I loved like seeing like even though uh, the the actor who is the edgy guy sure. is really fucking chewing the scenery. I didn't mind that so much, and I loved that once he is hearing the stories of people, he's like, maybe this was all kind of worth it in the first place, you know. I actually kind of bought that. Like I was like, yeah, yeah, I think this is really this really makes sense because when you're stuck in the fucking sanctuary, you're not thinking like everyone here has a story worth telling. You're just he's, thinking he, he's become hardened on the other side, right? Just yeah, like the yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, right? But when he, yeah, well, I mean, it's a survival thing. Oh, yeah. totally. And so when, but as he hears the stories, he's not that different than some of the people outside the walls because he doesn't he hasn't looked at the humanity of these people. Yeah. And so I really bought all of. I thought all of it was so effective and really well done and really made sense and to the extent that like when the cops come in i know full well that these people have to eat a bullet right like we know the history that like these folks are gonna die but i was like invested i'm like oh hat guy (laughs) (laughs) by that point right you know it's funny i think there's a a belief that uh, with a lot of star trek two-parters that the second tends to be the second half tends to be the one that lets it down i think it's this this two particular two-parter i love the first episode but i think the second episode really makes it you know i think it yeah really i agree is great yeah. stuff adriana what did you think of this episode generally well i mean i just said i agreed with your take but <laughs> the second part well what what are some of the things that you like so much yeah i mean there's a lot more action in part two I think that just makes it more of an engaging watch. You know, I love any episode where Cisco just has to take charge and tell everyone to cut their <laughs> bullshit. I'm always about that. Um, him pushing Jake Miller against it, the wall and being like telling him off oh, and being such a shitster. Scene, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I wasn't thinking about that, but that is such a key scene. And when I was watching it, I started tearing up because of the power of Avery Brooks's performance and the amount of emotion he is able to convey. Like I got really emotional watching him because you can just feel, you can feel every bit of what he's saying and that, that Cisco really feels so strongly about m- like making sure all of these people survive and, and, and upholding the integrity of the timeline and that, you know, just that, that he is completely disgusted with, the inhumanity of what is being done to all of these people within the sanctuary district and walls. But also just like how frustrating to be like, look, all I want to do is keep you alive. Why are you making it so difficult? Right. right. <laughs> um, so that's great. Um, I, not to go back to the, the B plot with Kira and O'Brien and all the goofiness with them jumping from, you know, time period to time period, but I kind of am impressed, am impressed that they managed to license Hey Joe for the whatever brief amount of time that they're in the 60s. I don't know if you noticed that, but that song is playing. Oh, I noticed it very much. Now, my understanding is that for that at least previously, if not currently on Netflix or maybe on Paramount Plus, that they have cut that song out of it because of licensing rights. 
You know, it's funny you say that because I didn't had no recollection of that song being in this episode. It was only this time that I was watching that I noticed it. So maybe like I every other time I watched it, I was watching the edited version that didn't. I think have the it. DVDs that were released of this season that that it was included on that. So we we were probably watching DVD rips of it. Which that is would why make sense. There. Yeah. But yeah, and I also, um, you know, I love the way Jedzia finds her way into the sanctuary district she goes through the sewer system though that does kind of raise a question of like if there's no one guarding the sewer and the sewer isn't blocked why aren't all of these people just escaping through the sewer like because i think she really said she easy. had to she had to hack her way into some sort of security thing to get into the oh, sewer. oh okay yeah something like that i'm sure they can explain it. or maybe it's just because there's riots well, going on well, and as also- long as they, they addressed it in the episode and explained it that it's not just some weird logic whole like sure. okay that makes well sense. i i think they also have a vibe because they've said it like they're they don't want to just be let out they need credits and id like the like right. if they like if everyone just stormed the wall and got out then it's just they're going to go back eventually like the whole right, sanctuary has up. to go away yeah and and Correct. so like yeah. i think that's part of it too but yeah that she, said if cisco and bashir if cisco and bashir could have gotten out through those the 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 sewers right at the beginning that would have saved everyone a lot of trouble oh totally totally i mean, <laughs> i don't know i i i'd say i i don't know that bashir would have immediately been like let's jump into the shit tunnels and figure it out you know like i feel like cisco i would be i could see him after a little bit being like well what about the sewers like let's you know let's let's be creative here uh but bashir i just feel like he was just gonna sit around and whine i mean as much as i like him in this episode it is he has this uh, this like very um unenviable role whereas cisco is very aware of the stakes yeah pretty quickly of what's going on brashir again this is his character at the time in that first episode spends a lot of time being like ew it sucks here like he's just very much like ew and it's not till this well, episode where he gets to be a little bit more like yeah when he connects with the social worker i think yeah that's a huge, he's he's really yeah. like more invested that first but episode also, i was like this dude sucks so bad i hate this guy but i don't I don't think that's a fair characterization of of like what how Bashir is reacting. He's not he's not like you. He is baffled. Yeah. By how by the level of indifference and callousness that uh, led to all of these people being forced into the sanctuary district. He he's he's confused and uh, upset by what he's seeing, and I think that's a totally valid reaction for him being from the 24th century and just to- being totally unused to this kind of uh, 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 cr- like human cruelty that that's kind of just not a thing in the Federation. So I see I, I totally disagree because I think this is but just like the, the actual dialogue supports me. <laughs> No, in My the argument. sense that why doesn't he know his fucking history? In the episode, Cisco looks okay, like that's fair. a dude who knows what like Cisco's like, yeah, our world is better, but this shit is what led to our world. Well, and because Bashir's Cisco like, says he's huh? something of a of a of a history buff and he is interested in the twenty first century. Not everybody in the twenty fourth century is gonna be interested in that period of time. I would think uh, Bashir would, would have a knowledge because he has been uh, altered to be smarter right. than the average person. Okay. But we don't discover that for several seasons. We don't know that yet. The <laughs> writers didn't decide that's that's, that's, that's what's that's that's And it was a bad idea happening. even when they do mention it. It's terrible. I just, yeah. I, just I, I just think the vibe is and maybe this is part of my thing not just on the show but with people in general 
when I'm watching it and I'm seeing him and Cisco interact, they're both horrified. But Cisco is much more knowledgeable about what's happening and what sort of led to this. And Bashir's vibe is like, man, this is really foreign from what I'm used to. Therefore, I feel like all these people are fucking monsters. Like, I, I just think he is judging everyone and everything he interacts with in a way that he's, like, above it. And I think the arc of the two episodes is he sees these people who are in this horrible situation, and he sees their humanity in a way that I don't think he saw when he first got there. He yeah, just is looking around absolutely. going, if you can live in this and not just lose your mind, then there's something wrong with you. And, like, we know that while we can all say that, we could say that about right now, but like we also know how people do it. That it's not just that every single individual human on the planet is just morally corrupt or incapable of thinking of something better. It's that you're in a system and you get conditioned and we hope for something better. And obviously some people do see something better, but you can't write off the whole population. And that's the vibe I'm, I was getting from him in the first episode, whereas by the second episode, he feels a lot more like – uh, aware of what's at stake and connected to the people there and really seems like maybe more of the character that he would become. Though, honestly, I don't remember any of that stuff. Maybe I only watched the first few seasons because I don't remember the later stuff. My favorite moment in the entire episode is when Dick Miller is trying to like um, engage them with his love of baseball and none of them know what he's talking about. And when they ask Bashir, he just talks about his love for tennis instead because, of course, he would love... I mean, I think that's established on the show generally. It is, yeah. That he's, he's a, a tennis he's guy. A... But, of course, Cisco, who... You know, baseball is his thing. He can engage directly. I think it's a huge character moment for how everything kind of yeah. progresses. I mean, this is a very tense episode, even though you kind of have a pretty good idea of how things are going to, at least how things are going to uh, resolve at the end. But exactly the pieces of that, uh, even now, even though I, I've seen this episode a few times, uh, I was still surprised because I haven't seen it in so long. Um, exactly how some of those pieces come together, like the fact that they switch the IDs at the end. So Gabriel Bell's corpse is, uh, you know, he's shown his died. So, you know, the way that the timeline, I mean, it's very neat. It all comes together in a way that ends up very neat, but it's got to be, right? There's a, <laughs> the fact that they even leave that little bit at the end that Cisco's picture is still in the history that books. As always Bell. throws me because, like, you're telling me there's nobody at Starfleet who, like, knows history and is like, hang on a second, why does this. <laughs> Why does Cisco look exactly like this very important historical figure? Here, here's my pet theory, century? which is that which is that he's like, oh fuck, you know what I need to do? Shave my head and grow a beard. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! At least it that is, makes a little more sense. That's the reason it happened. Yeah. Well, I figured I, it out, Doug. I think this is part of the thing with Star Trek in general, like when we have issues. Like if you are doing something from this time period going into the past paintings are different than photographs right so you sure. could easily be mm -hmm. like well who knows what the fuck this king looks like we just have those paintings which are not very helpful but once you have video and photographs it's like no we know exactly what this person was like we even we even <laughs> yeah. have a recording of their voice now and sure. like in the future i mean they could make it so there's no records right but then they can't get into how cisco knows all the there has to be records from that time for cisco to be like well this is what was going on and this is why it's important it's a difficult thing to to do I think they didn't need to do that. I think it's just a funny whatever. But there had to be nerds at the time, like people really invested in continuity stuff that were like, no, that doesn't work. You know what I mean? I'm sure someone saw that moment and didn't just think yeah. it was weird, like was mad about it. To be it. honest, those yeah. are my least favorite type of like Star Trek fan, the, the people who oh, are 100%. so hung up I feel, on I feel like those kind of fans. Canon. 
I feel like those and, kind of uh, fans directly led to like the temporal police and enterprise, which is like the worst <laughs> of that fucking oh show. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's it. I, one of the, by the way, I just want to say that the reason to be I fair, like, they kind of appear in Voyager. Like yes. you have the re- episode relativity with uh, Braxton and yeah. So my feelings on Voyager are a little complex, but I mean, we won't get into that right now. I did want to say that one of the reasons I like this episode more, a little more than the first is I feel like it's really hard to get across the scope of what's happening when you only have like a two block, radius that you can do stuff in and because this episode takes place you know very much in this one location it can be, it's a little more focused right it's just like you can say all this shit is going on outside you can have a few you know wide shots of people fighting and things like that in the background and that's enough to get across the scope because it's hard i mean even with star trek budgets which at the time were larger than i think a lot of the syndicated programming it's still it's nothing like today, right? Or even an episode of Battlestar Galactica from 15 years ago where um, where the scope of it got so much wider with the use of CG and things like that. So I really like the idea that it's, it centers more on the characters. And it, it even though I think we've all mentioned at this point that the B-plot is pretty flawed at this point, it's such a small part of it. And it's actually kind of nice to have a little bit of relief from the tension every once in a while. Adriana, any final thoughts on the episode before we just talk about Dick Miller's character? Um final thoughts let me think or anything else that stands out to you that we haven't talked about yeah well i mean i hinted at this earlier about how this episode like very subtly comments on race and Mm -hmm. uh, the way race can uh impact how we uh experience the world and so you know uh, like Jadzia, Jadzia's experience in 21st century San Francisco is very different than Bashir's and Cisco's. But I think that her, um, her part that she plays in this in this episode kind of models how to use white privilege for good. Absolutely, yeah. You know, she charms her way into the privileged society of San Francisco. She convinces this wealthy guy to allow the people in the sanctuary district district to use his whatever internet channel i'm not really sure (laughs) what it's called i don't remember but to use it to share their story to 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 tell the truth about what is actually going on within the walls of the sanctuary districts and she doesn't try to play like white savior and have the big moment where she's telling the story and she's saving the day she just enables cisco and bashir and their uh, their their allies uh, within the sanctuary district to to do that themselves, which she helps them, uh, and yeah. So I just find I just find that a really interesting component of these two episodes, and it is absolutely intentional. Like when I was watching this for the first time, I had a feeling that it was because I just, you know it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would just be a happy accident. And at that time, I didn't really know anything about the writers of Deep Space Nine. Um, uh, but So then I looked it up, and yeah, it definitely was very intentional. And I just have a little quotation here from Ira Stephen Bear. This is also from the Deep Space Nine Companion. And he said, quote, The simple fact is that a beautiful white woman is always going to get much better treatment than two brown-skinned men. And yeah. that he basically wanted there to be this examination of racism in the episode, even though it isn't like the main thing that the episode is about. He felt it was important to still work it into the episode somehow. And I think they did a really good job with that. I think it could be missed by someone who maybe isn't as uh, in tune 
with the realities of how people are treated depending on their race and ethnicity uh but it's it if you have the the smallest amount of um uh awareness you, you can't miss it in how this episode and it's you know it's interesting that they have to f- focus on these characters that are human presenting right they have to explain that dax is like her tattoos on her head is the only oh, way yeah she gets which around. It makes sense because honestly, the '90s was sure was a decade for bad tattoos. You know, tribal white people with tribal he, tattoos. Were he mentions that he had the, he had the tribal tattoo. The guy that she yeah. talks to, which is so funny to think about. Liam, we already mentioned that Clint Howard shows up in this episode. Uh, we didn't really talk about the character very much. Anything else to add in regards to the episode itself, and anything about that character? I just find it a joy when Clint Howard shows up and gets to be weird. Like that's just fun, and it's very brief. But it's very 90s to make sure we reference our obsession with aliens. Uh, little did they know then how that would still be with us so strongly today. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I like that. And yeah, the episode, it's, it, it, is, um, it has serious stakes. It deals with issues that are uh, still relevant today. It's very well executed. Yeah, I, I had fun. I, I don't know. I'd have to rewatch the series, but... Um, to some extent, I, I feel like with all Star Trek stuff, there's always this like bit of corniness that I find both endearing and frustrating ultimately, depending on the episode. And this episode, I didn't really find anything frustrated, but that one moment, or it's not one moment, but that one B plot of them going place to place that just felt so out of sync with the rest of the episode. And even that, it wasn't long enough to be, like, truly frustrating. It was just, you know, I didn't feel like it fit. But otherwise, it's just a very enjoyable two episodes of television if you like this sort of thing. You know, uh, uh, I the only part that also made me giggle, but again, in an endearing way, is, like, they come out to, like, the devastation of this riot and this, you know, the violence and they, you know, they just don't have the money for more yeah, than like yeah. 20 extras. Right. Yeah. They can't have a street full of people. That's fine. It works. You know? And I certainly at the time was so used to this level of production. I would have noticed it, but watching it now in this era of like streaming channels, throwing bajillions of dollars at shows, I'm like, Absolutely. Oh man, this would have been a million CGI people rolling around on the ground or something yeah. like that. Even know? comparing it to modern Star Trek, right? Even yeah, sure, 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 recent sure. shows and stuff like that. No, it's hard not to notice there. You have to, to accept certain things when you're watching Star Trek from this era and you know, the, the, the fabrics on the walls and things like that. Just, it's endearing depending on your perspective, but it's also something that you get used to as you watch it. Unlike some of the other Star Trek series where particularly I'm thinking of the next generation where basically the first season is rocky and the second season is pretty rocky as well. And then it gets good in the third season. D space nine has some rockiness in its first, uh, first few episodes, but it gets good pretty darn quick. I'm really, yeah. It, str- even the season first season has some absolute bangers like that. episode. B- bangers and also character notes that are going to be important later on. So it's still, yes. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a real fan of the series and I really strongly recommend listeners. Hey, if you watch these episodes and it, they appeal to you, uh, they're not all like this. The, the tone isn't always so dire. Uh, the tone isn't always so serious. It's a, sh- a show that has a lot of humor in it. It's a show that has a lot of heart in it. And I'll tell you, if you've never seen The Visitor, that is an episode that is as emotionally oh devastating God. as any TV show that I've ever seen ever. So strongly recommended, uh, Liam and Adriana. Before we finish up, 
Dick Miller goes through a change of heart in this episode. I mean, he's still basically the same character, and he's still basically Dick Miller. Any thoughts about him before we finish up in the second half of Past Tense, starting with you, Adriana? Uh, well, his character certainly, you know, like you said, he goes on a bit of a journey. Uh, and by the end of the second episode in this two-parter, uh, you really are, like, cheering for him because he's, you know, he's kind of, he's come around to the side of uh, Gabriel Bell, or who he thinks is Gabriel Bell, That's and the right. side of the, um, you know, the, the homeless folks who, you know, populate the Sanctuary District who... Um, are being mistreated and he kind of he he grows more of a heart and becomes more sympathetic to their cause and certainly that makes him a more sympathetic character at least to me so yeah the key to it is certainly where at the end where cisco says you know tell tell the story of what you saw here you know that's what he wants them to do for me he's like i was going to do that anyway so i mean obviously it was a very affecting thing that happened uh, in all sorts of different levels how about you liam any other things to mention about dick miller's performance here no, it's just really good, and uh, like I, like we said before, I really believe the total arc of the character, and I think he really you know does a great job. Dick Miller in this era basically only really played two roles, right? It was either the gruff son of a bitch that is a bad guy, or the gruff son of a bitch who's a good guy, and in this two parter he gets to play both, which is why it's my, <laughs> yeah one of my favorite of uh, Dick Miller's performances. The full dick. No. <laughs> That's right, you get the full dick. <laughs> In this two-parter from Deep Space Nine. Uh, thank you, both of you, for taking the time to talk about this. Uh, Liam, I know that you were coming at this with some hesitancy. I hope you managed to enjoy it uh, all the same. It did actually I hope you like... managed to actually watch all the way through Deep Space Nine. Cause yeah, it, you like, I just think you would absolutely love it, Liam. Liam, you have all the spare time, so why don't you, uh, you, you crank it on? There's only 24 episodes every season. <laughs> Shouldn't be a big problem for you to get through. <laughs> I'm just kidding around. Adriana, thanks so much. I knew that you would be a great guest to talk about Star Trek generally and this this show specifically. Uh, and you absolutely were. Where can people find you online or your other work out there? Well, you can find me on Z- Zitter X at E-A-D-X-B-B, although I have not really posted there in quite a while. Uh, you can find me on the Cinepunks Discord server. Ooh. I'm a much I'm much more active there than I am on uh, s- social media, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you've been doing some some uh, music gigs lately. Anything upcoming oh. that people might want to check out? I mean. It's really only relevant to people who are like in the Lehigh Valley or Philly and willing to travel. But I mean, when do I have a show? Oh my god, I have several shows coming up, and I'm blanking on all of them. The, the, the well, I have has a show. A my band. Page. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so I have a. It's an improvisational crowd rock band called Hexting that I'm in, and we have a show on August 27th. We're playing the Ice House in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, I have another band, a surf band called Sunbus. We have a show at the Fun House in Bethlehem on September 1st, and we may be playing the Honing Drive-In uh, at some point in October. That is not set in stone yet. We just played there uh, for a screening of Beach Blanket Bingo. That was really fun. But yeah, we have some shows coming up. And I also uh, I do some film programming. I will be hosting... 
a screening of Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames on August 26th at Frank Blanco Alehouse Cinemas in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I did a pre-recorded interview with Lizzie Borden talking about the film. Uh, that was really fun, so that'll be playing after the screening. Uh, I also will be hosting a screening of Cruising coming up on September mm. 9th, and that's part of a uh, a little uh, William Friedkin tribute that we're doing at the theater. We're showing Cruising, a Sorcerer, and The Exorcist. Hopefully everyone can get out who are in the area to those screenings. Uh, my thoughts on William Friedkin are, have been recorded elsewhere. Liam, we know that you're a very busy man. You don't have time to sit down and watch D-Space 9 from cover to cover. But uh, <laughs> but one of these days, maybe your schedule will open up a little bit. In the meantime, where, where can people find you or your work online? Well, uh, of course, everyone can head to cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, where they can find the latest episodes of this podcast, as well as the whole family of uh, great podcasts uh, uh, over there, is, and also writing and merch and other things. Uh, if people want to maybe explore our whole archive of shows, whether that's uh, more episodes of uh, uh, this, the name just escaped me. What is it again? You, you don't, don't know, know Dick? Dick? Yeah. <laughs> Whether that's episodes of this podcast, You Don't Know Dick, or, of course, our uh, Bar Tell Me Something Good with our very own Adriana, uh, and a bunch of other things. They can head to cinemasmorgasbord.com, where not only can you see all those different uh, topics that we cover, you can search by topic. If, perchance, all you want to hear is us jawing about Paul Bartell movies or Jackie Chan, you can search by topic over there on that website. Yes, that's over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Liam's on Twitter as well. Every once in a while, at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z. I'm no longer on Twitter, but I am. Move over, ELO. I am Mr. Blue Sky over at bluesky at dugtilly.bsky.social. You can check me out there being just as vocal as I was previously on Twitter. Yeah, and as Liam mentioned, if you're enjoying Cinema Smorgasbord or the podcast within, why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice, or just as importantly, uh, why don't you tell a friend if you are a fan of Jackie Chan, Carol Kane, Paul Bartel, Alejandro Jodorowsky, etc., etc. You can check that out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. But for now, we need to take a little break. We will be back very soon with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everyone. Night-night. <laughs> <laughs>